Please be seated. Good evening. Book of Joel this evening, Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, currently in uh, the Minor Prophets. We come to the book of Joel, having finished the book of uh, Hosea. And it begins in uh, chapter 1, verse 1. The introduction is brief. Uh, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, uh, the son of Pethuel. And so uh, we know nothing more about Joel except the fact that he is the son of Pethuel. It's a little unusual and most of the uh, prophetic books in the Bible were given the, the kings under which the prophet would minister so we can identify more clearly uh, the time in which they did minister and fit it into its place in terms of Israel's history, but we're not given that uh, to us. The most important thing, though, is given to us, and that is that what we're about to read is the word of the Lord that was given to Joel, uh, the son of Pethuel. The audience, and just to get our bearings here a little bit, the audience that uh, and the land to which uh, Joel uh, prophesied was the southern kingdom of Judah. And, uh, and uh, this is ascertained on the basis of how many references he makes to Judah, to Jerusalem itself. So he ministered to the southern uh, kingdom. The time of his prophecy, uh, nobody can be certain, but he makes uh, no mention of a king here, as I've mentioned, but his ministry is usually tied to uh, the reign of uh, Joash, and uh, for the uh, reason, uh, for the reason being that, uh, in terms of theme, what he talks about in terms of theme uh, is similar with other prophets in the era, uh, same era, uh, Amos and also Isaiah, written about the same time to the northern kingdom of Israel, and also. At the time of this writing, and this is important uh, in terms of understanding what's happening in the book, um, at the time of this writing, Judah's enemies were the Phoenicians and the Philistines, as well as the Egyptians and the Edomites, as we'll see, and uh, her enemies are not portrayed as Assyrians or Assyria, or uh, the Babylonians. So that appears to be yet in the future in terms of, of, her, uh, of her history. And so if we accept what is considered to be an early date for uh, Joel, Joel was a contemporary with the prophets uh, Jonah, and uh, Amos up in the north, Hosea in the north, Elijah in the north, and Elisha up in the north. The theme of the book and the whole key phrase to the book and the key to understanding the book, and the book is, a, is actually a very technical book, and at least it is in my mind. Um, most people just remember, there's, there's locusts in that book, aren't right? Isn't that the book with all those locusts? Yeah, it, it is. And that's, uh, uh, and that's sometimes w- what we remember from it. Um, because it's kind of hard. You get done with it at, uh, reading the three chapters maybe in your devotional life and you're going, uh, I know that's important, but I don't have the slightest idea what I just uh, uh, read here in all of this. But the key phrase in the book is the day of the Lord. It's used five times um, in, in the book. And uh, I'd like us just to take a look at those five times just so you see them with your own eyes before we get to them. In uh, chapter 1, verse 15 
uh, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. And then you go to chapter 2, verse 1, blow the trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm in my holy mountains, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. And then verse 11 of chapter 2, the Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for strong is the one who executes his word, for the, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, who can endure it. And then in verse 31 of the same uh, chapter, uh, it, uh, the sun and the darkness will be, sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And then in chapter 13, uh, I mean chapter 3, uh, verse 14, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decisions for the day of the Lord is near uh, in the valley of uh, decision. And so uh, the, the day of the Lord uh, it refers to a time in man's history. Uh, it is yet future in terms of its ultimate fulfillment, but it, as it's used in the scriptures, it refers to a time that follows the rapture of the church. And what is known as the last days, and then will unfold uh, the tribulation period where God pours his judgment out on a Christ-rejecting world for, uh, for seven uh, years. And then when that is brought to an end, he establishes his, ki his kingdom, which is known as the thousand-year reign of Christ or the millennial kingdom. It occurs at Jesus' second coming following uh, following the end of the great tribulation and then uh, following that uh, thousand year reign there's a final rebellion that is allowed to rise up against God God puts that down and then give, all of that gives way to what is known as the white throne uh, judgment of, of Christ and then the destruction of the present heavens and earth because all of it's going to one day give way to a new heaven and an earth and the day of the Lord brings to an end entirely uh, all of the, the rebellion of man uh, against uh, God. And there, there won't be anything, uh, go, uh, any rebellion against him going forward. It will be in that new heaven and new earth as the Bible describes it, uh, the, the God's reign of uninterrupted uh, righteousness. And so the day of the Lord, uh, and don't be troubled if, uh, if you say you've already lost me. This is a gift I have. Um, not everybody has it, but I'm, I have a very special anointing in that way. Um, so often with prophecy, it's so interconnected with other sections of the Bible. And so the first time sometimes when you hear these things, uh, you'll be at a loss for how to put all of them together. But then the next time you'll understand a little more, and the next time a little more, and so forth. So uh, it, it doesn't return void. It's, 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 uh, it, it's helpful, and, and, uh, but don't feel like, oh, oh boy, I think I'm in the wrong place. Uh, here, here this evening. So the day of the Lord includes the great tribulation. It includes the uh, battle of Armageddon, the thousand-year reign of Christ, the second coming, white throne judgment, and uh, during which all unrighteousness is then uh, dealt with. And so it's going to be the fulfillment of the day of the Lord is going to be a, a great fulfillment in terms of the righteous, and it will be a terrifying day for the unrighteous. Now, the pattern of the book is 
very, very interesting. It's very simple. Uh, Joel prophesies on behalf of God, and he takes a, in, in chapters one, in, in terms of what we'll do, look at tonight, and we'll uh, move well into chapter two, but we won't finish the whole book this evening. But he, uh, God has Joel prophesy about a current event that is going on in Israel, and then in terms of an, in a plague of locusts, and then a military invasion that hasn't happened to them yet, but uh, is going to hap- was going to happen to them in the near future when this was written, and in my mind speaking of uh, the, the Assyrians' invasion of the southern kingdom uh, of, of Judah. And, and as he describes those two particular events, he mentions the day of the Lord in describing them. It's a very peculiar way to describe them. He describes these kind of judgments elsewhere in terms of the major and minor prophets, and he doesn't refer to that language, but he does in, in the book of uh, of Joel, and what uh, Joel is communicating is that these uh, these events that they found themselves in the middle of, and the events in terms of being invaded by the Assyrians, all of these things were types or pictures or shadows of the kind of judgment that will come upon the world uh, in the last days in terms of uh, the day of the Lord and God br- bringing His judgment to bear upon uh, the Jewish people, but upon the world as a whole in order to establish uh, his, his kingdom. And so uh, it has a, a near fulfillment, and, and then it's a picture of a far fulfillment of, of the day of the Lord in the last days. And so Joel, uh, to me, is, as we read it, it's the closest thing uh, in the Old Testament that the Jews had to our book of Revelation. Probably Daniel and Joel put together the later chapters of Daniel. Uh, we go to the book of Revelation. We also, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and wow, we have this amazing chronology of what's going to be happening during the Great Tribulation and when the judgment is poured out, Jesus' second coming, all of these things just laid out so clear for us. And, uh, and, uh, and, but we have a much clearer revelation under the new covenant than they had. And so the Jews, in order to try to understand the end of the age for their people, when will the Messiah come and establish a kingdom of perfect righteousness? Well, Joel was the book that they would look at with Daniel and try and put all of that together to understand um, the last days. And so... Uh, 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 this, uh, this, is, uh, this is kind of their revelation where there it's uh, revealed uh, uh, to them what God, will, uh, what God will have to do to, uh, among the Jewish people in order for him not only to bring an end to their idolatry and to their sin, but also to bring a uh, successful end to the greatest sin that they have committed, and that is, uh, by and large, their rejection of Jesus Christ as their Messiah. At Jesus' second coming, they will recognize Him at that time as being their promised uh, Messiah, and uh, this is how it all leads to that conquering King 
uh, view of the Messiah that, that, that they uh, possessed and uh, were, were looking forward to. And so the, the uh, present devastation, he describes it here, the initial picture of what the judgment will look like in the, the last days, uh, a type of it begins in verse 2. Hear this, you elders, and give ear all you inhabitants of the land. Everyone's to listen. Has anything like this happened in your days or even in the days of your fathers? Tell your children about it. Uh, Let your children tell their children and their children another generation. And what the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten. And what the crawling locust left, uh, the consuming locust has, uh, ha- has eaten. And so he describes this uh, severe devastation of a locust plague that was occurring in Judah at that uh, particular point in time. It had devastated the land. Uh, the desolation is, is uh, uh, described here. He, ju- he describes wave upon wave of locusts, making just a complete destruction of the land of Judah. And he, he, uh, he speaks of four waves of, of locusts that are going to come. And when one wave of locusts is finished eating all that it could eat, as it was moving on another wave, and then a third wave, and a fourth wave, uh, eating whatever was left by the previous. And as you might imagine, uh, there would be uh, nothing in terms of of vegetation that would survive uh, four waves of, of, of hungry locusts going through the land. And so the land would be left in such a, a destroyed state, uh, such a devastated state as a result of this plague that was hitting them that Joel says, this is a type, this is a picture of the kind of devastation that is going to come upon the land of Israel uh, during the great tribulation period, uh, when the day of the Lord uh, comes in all of its fullness in, uh, uh, in, in terms of the land of Israel. Now, a plague, a single locust plague would be bad enough. Four of them, one upon the other. I mean, that, nothing worse could happen to an agrarian society. Uh, I don't know when it was that I saw it, but I, I had to be eight years old or something uh, like that. And I remember watching a Western on television. And, uh, and I remember seeing these, these locust plague just come, uh, w- was coming against these farmsteaders and all this thing. And it just made its way through and wiped out the entire uh, crop and, and everything. And I remember just uh, as a young kid just being aghast that uh, there was nothing you could do they're trying to set fires and trying to destroy the grain before they could get to it, not so their grain would be saved, but so they wouldn't be able to eat and maybe save other farmers that are down uh, the way and all. In agrarian society, this was just the worst. And, you might, and uh, these locust plagues even happen to today, and we are largely powerless against them. It was just in the last two or three years that a major locust plague was making its way through the Middle East, and, uh, and all they could do is track it and track its, uh, its destruction. And so something that was uh, common in that part of the world and 
and uh, even happens to this day. And so uh, when there's a locust plague like this, uh, a person is absolutely powerless to stop it. And so he's describing a judgment from God that's going to come on the world, uh, that man is going to be completely powerless in, in trying to uh, stop it in, in any way. All you can do is watch it uh, happen. When he talks about the four different kind of locusts, lots of people look at it and they try to figure out which one of these locusts and the families of the locusts and uh, are these the four stages of development of locusts and that kind of thing. Well, have at it. I think there's nothing wrong with doing that at all. But I think the main idea is, as he's communicating the four different varieties, is that the destruction is absolute. The devastation is uh, it, it is uh, complete, communicating that uh, it, it, the destruction is going to be complete and total and absolutely nothing left. And again, a picture of how, uh, how the condition of, of the land of, of Israel uh, during the end of the age, not only related to uh, the, the uh, seal and the bowl and the trumpet judgments that we read about in the Revelation that will come upon the entire world, but then the sheer amount of destruction militarily that will occur as uh, the Antichrist under the influence of Satan will make a special target of the Jewish people, and, uh, and then the wars that will occur there, and nothing is more devastating for land uh, than uh, war. And we haven't even seen a war that unleashes the kind of weapons that have been developed since uh, um, in, in more recent times when everything is unleashed and there's no, no restraint uh, concerning that. And so it isn't unlikely that this plague, this, this local uh, historical plague of the locusts was a judgment of God against Judah because of her sin and her idolatry at that time. She failed to keep her covenant with God, the law of Moses. And God had declared in the law of Moses in the book of Deuteronomy that if they did not keep their covenant with him, that this kind of thing would uh, occur uh, in the land. And so here's the destruction and then uh, uh, first, and then you go back to verses 2 and 3, and, uh, and here's the call to the elders to uh, heed the prophecy and, and its context of a, of a locust plague and to pass down not only the plague but the message associated with the plague that Joel is giving them and pass it down from one generation to the next. And so he says uh, there in verse uh, 2, has anything like this happened in your days or even in the days of your fathers? And it's a rhetorical question and the answer to that question is no. And so Joel mentions five generations here. Uh, and in other words, this is kind of a once in every five generation kind of event. And again, it's a shadow of what Jesus declared of the great tribulation at the end of the age in Matthew chapter 24, verse 21. For then there shall be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. The greatness of the destruction, this is a shadow of 
uh, all of it. And then Joel lets the elders know and the inhabitants, let every generation of your people know about this event, the spiritual significance that God is attaching uh, to this plague. And then he begins to speak to uh, the, the nation uh, uh, and four different groups of people that are described in terms of how this plague uh, affected them, and then uh, his uh, resultant call for them to uh, to repent. And he began with, "Wake up, you drunkards!" And the idea is, uh, "Sober up, uh, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine." because of the new wine, because of this plague, uh, it has been cut off from your mouth, for a nation has come up against my land, speaking of the locusts, strong and without number. His teeth are like the teeth of a lion, and he has the fangs of a fierce lion. Uh, he has laid waste my vine, so the destruction of, of the vineyards ruined my fig tree. Trees weren't spared in any way. He has stripped it bare, thrown it away, and its branches are made white, stripped it right down uh, past the bark and into the interior of, of these plants. And so God says to the drunkards, you don't want to remove the uh, drunkardness, drunkenness from your own life as a, a choice that you w would make on your own. I'm going to take the bottle away from your lips by destroying the source uh, of your wine with this judgment uh, of, of the locusts. And then he uh, uh, describes the effect of, of all of this upon uh, the land, that the land would mourn, lament like a virgin, uh, uh, girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. And so one of the saddest pictures in not only in the ancient world, but even today, you have pictured here a bride, a, a young woman who is engaged to be married. And, uh, and then uh, just prior to the wedding, her husband tragically dies. And this great future that, uh, uh, that she had in her mind related to what would unfold with her husband has been <clears throat> instantly snatched away. And God is declaring <clears throat> that that is the, the, the effect that this will have uh, upon the land. They thought everything's going to continue as it was and always has been, and yet this plague would uh, wake them up to the seriousness of their sin. The grain offering and the drink offering uh, have been cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn who minister to the Lord. The field is wasted. The land mourns, for the grain is ruined, and the new wine is dried up. The oil fails. Now, Put yourself in the place of these people and in the place of this kind of a plague. Now, I can, I can, uh, I can read this and eat a Danish. I mean, I'm an American. I mean, if this makes me hungry, I've got enough in, in my uh, uh, coin compartment in, in my car to go get two supersized meals at McDonald's. So, so we sit here and we read it from a certain context, but in an agrarian society, for the land to be stripped in this way, you are wondering, how am I going to eat? 
How uh, is my wife or husband going to eat? The children going to eat? I mean, this is just a, a huge devastation. And again, there's a, a picture of, of the last days. Be ashamed, you farmers, as he, he talks about the effect of this upon the farmers. Wail, you vine dressers, and uh, for the wheat and the barley, because of the harvest of the field, it's perished, eaten up. And the vine has dried up, and the fig tree has withered, the pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field are withered. Surely joy has uh, with, uh, withered away from the sons of men. Talking about the joy uh, of the harvest. And I, I remember when I was a kid, and I, um, there's a lot I liked about being a kid when, uh, when what it was like to be a kid uh, when I was a kid. Uh, did I say kid enough in that sentence? Uh, but, but this was before McDonald's and all these different kinds of things, and so you would scramble as somebody in high school or junior high school to try and find a job to earn money to buy your school clothes. And so we picked prunes. Gabe and I did, 35 cents a box, and it was enough to buy our school clothes each year for uh, the coming year. There's some, but there's something exciting about a harvest. I mean, it's hard work and all of that, but here, all of this work that's gone on all year long, this is the, the culmination of it. This is the excitement uh, of, uh, of the whole thing, and that all of this would be then denied them because uh, these locusts will have eaten everything, denying them uh, farmers a harvest. And uh, to deny a farmer a harvest is... Uh, a, 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 a cause for lament and, and wailing. He then speaks to the priests and the effect of this upon the priests. Gird yourselves and lament, you priests. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come and lie all night in sackcloth. And to wear sackcloth was a sign of mourning. You put, I mean, the closest thing we could maybe think of today would be to um, get a, a set of a burlap long johns and put them on today, 102 degrees or whatever it might be, and, and just the itching and the whole everything, and it would be a sign of, of mourning. It would make you mourn and, uh, as, a, as an expression of our heart in mourning toward the Lord. And so here he tells them not only wear the sackcloth during the day, but this is going to be so bad, uh, don't take it off. Wear it even uh, in, in the night. And you who minister uh, to my God and, uh, and uh, wail and lament for the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. So if there was any scrap of anything left in terms of a harvest in the land of, of Judah, it would have gone to uh, at least being able to have the uh, grain uh, offering, the peace offering, and so forth that would have been offered to the Lord in the temple. But here the devastation will be so great uh, that there won't even be uh, that much uh, that would be left even to uh, support the worship of the Lord uh, there um, in the temple. And then Joel cries out to the land in the, in the light of this uh, desolation, 
consecrate a fast and call a sacred or a solemn assembly, gather the inhabitants, uh, the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. So uh, there are times in which when devastation hits in this kind of way, it is prudent then to say, to, to cry out to the Lord. Now, we should never look and say, when difficulty comes into our lives, like it did in, in the life of Job, to look at difficulty in our life and, this, and say, this means God is mad at me. We don't come to conclusions about God's love for me uh, or His faithfulness to His promises based upon our outward uh, circumstances. But when devastation like this comes into our lives, it is prudent then to find some quiet place and for them as a nation, because this wasn't just an individual judgment, to come before God and say, God, in the light of all of this, I just want to make sure, is everything all right between you and me? Is there anything I've been missing? Is there anything you've been telling me that I've been ignoring? Because if I have, uncle, you got me. And uh, just tell me about this. And so the uh, the prudence of this, cry out to the Lord about what is happening here. And uh, the, the reason for the crying out uh, for the Lord, the reason for the devastation, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand, and it shall come as destruction uh, from uh, the Almighty. And so they should recognize this uh, as a judgment of God uh, against their, their sin and uh, even as uh, the day of the Lord in the last days will be uh, just such a judgment to bring it to an end. Is not the food cut off from our eyes and joy and gladness from the house of our Lord? So to have food cut off from our existence, joy and gladness and, and the worship of God in, in the Lord, the seed shrivels under the clods and and uh, just uh, drying up underneath it. Uh, storehouses are in shambles. Barns are broken down uh, because of uh, just falling into decay because of the, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the effects of this uh, particular plague. The grain has withered. How the animals groan. Uh, the herds of the cattle are restless and the ideas with hunger because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of uh, sheep suffer uh, punishment. So the whole world, even the animal kingdom, isn't going to be uh, spared related to uh, this uh, judgment. And so uh, you notice that uh, uh, Joel cry, uh, cries out here. Uh, he, he calls this current uh, devastation here the day of the Lord and uh, a, a day that will be yet uh, future as he uh, describes it in, in chapter 2. He says, O Lord, uh, to you I cry out, for fire has devoured the open pastures and a flame has burned uh, all of the fields, uh, trees of the field. The beasts of the field also cry out to you, for the water brooks are dried up and fire has devoured the open pastures. And so uh, just a, a complete devastation uh, of, of the land. And because he does, as I mentioned a moment here in chapter 2, verse 1, because he does describe the day of the Lord in the next chapter 
as something that is future. You notice at the end of chapter 2, verse 1, for the day of the Lord is coming. That tells us that his description of the day of the Lord in in, uh, chapter 1 here is a type of this day of the Lord that is yet in the future, a type of the Assyrian invasion that he's going to describe in chapter 2. But even then, uh, merely even uh, that invasion by Assyria is a type of the great devastation that's coming at the end of the age in the great tribulation and, uh, and so forth. And so he says in chapter 2, speaking of a a worse judgment than the locust judgment that was coming uh, to Judah on uh, on the near side of of, uh, a fulfillment of it uh, in in the form of uh, an Assyrian invasion. I'll tell you why I think it's the Assyrian invasion in, uh, in just a moment. But he says, blow the trumpet in Zion and sound the alarm in my holy mountain and, uh, and so here is this warning uh, in Zion. Zion speaking of Jerusalem and invading forces coming into the land. Sound the trumpet in Jerusalem uh, that were being invaded. And let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming for it is at hand. And so, uh, so he describes this military invasion. Now, there's a debate in terms of whether this refers to uh, the Assyrian invasion of the southern kingdom of Judah or later on the Babylonian invasion of, uh, of, uh, of Judah, but I think it, it clearly speaks of, uh, of, of the Assyrian uh, invasion because uh, following the Babylonian invasion, there was really uh, nothing left. They were completely displaced in, in Judah. But you might remember as we were looking at the historical books in, uh, in, in the past, in the Old Testament, that when uh, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, when he conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, that he continued on in his quest in an attempt to uh, overthrow uh, Judah or Jerusalem and Jerusalem, but, uh, but kind of her... Uh, you know, she wasn't as, Judah wasn't as far along in her sin as, as, and as ripe for judgment as the northern kingdom of Israel was. And so God did not intend for Assyria to be his chastening rod against the southern kingdom of Judah, but later the Babylonians. But uh, you remember Sennacherib made his way from the north, and, and I think a lot of it becomes clear in verse 20, a little bit later in the chapter, I will remove far from you the northern army and drive him away into a barren and desolate land. So Sennacherib and the Assyrians come into Judah from the north, and uh, they get stopped at Jerusalem. And Jerusalem would have fallen to them. They conquered all of the land. They made a devastation of the the northern portion of the land of Israel. They overthrew the fortified cities. The only thing that stood between them and and a, a complete overthrow of Judah was the city of Jerusalem. And then you might remember in Isaiah chapter 37 that uh, famous event where the angel of the Lord went out while the Assyrian army was sieging Jerusalem and in a single night uh, killed uh, 185,000 
frontline Assyrian troops, and when uh, the people arose uh, early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead, and Sennacherib, taking a loss like that, then made his way back to Assyria and left Jerusalem and Judah alone. But they had done significant devastation before they were turned uh, back. And so he describes this invasion uh, by Assyria uh, as a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds uh, spread over the mountains. A people come great and strong, the like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be any such after them, even for many successive uh, generations. And so... Here is uh, speaking about just the massive size of, of this uh, Assyrian army that was coming into the land uh, to, uh, to conquer it. A fire devours uh, uh, before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden in front of them, before them, and by the time they pass over it, uh, it's become a desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them, again speaking of the devastation of the land, uh, utter devastation, their appearance is like, uh, is like the appearance of horses and like swift steeds, uh, so they run. With a noise like chariots, over mountains they leap, like the noise of a flaming fire that uh, devours the stubble and like a strong people set in battle array. And, and you, you, you just might imagine seeing this, this army that numbers 185,000 at least it's making its way through the land. It begins to now encamp around Jerusalem and the siege and the chariots and, and all of this, and just the sheer noise of all of it. The horses, the, the weaponry banging against it, and all of the, the, the wagons coming in with the food, and, then, and, and uh, all of the noise of war all uh, uh, surrounding, the, uh, surrounding the, uh, the city, and just that awesome, uh, awesome thing. And before them, before this invasion, the people writhe in pain. Uh, in the city of Jerusalem. Remember, it did, if God, if that angel hadn't gone forth, and it was just an angel, wasn't a spectacular angel, it wasn't an archangel, it was just a regular angel, just Angel Bob, just a Angel Joe, uh, came and and took care of uh, of business. And but if God hadn't uh, hadn't stepped up and protected them, they would have been inside that city, and everybody saying. We are doomed. And so when you face that kind of reality related to your life, there's the writhing in pain. All of their faces were drained of color in the face of this military. They run this military dust like mighty men. They climb the wall like men of war. Everyone marches in formation, the discipline. They don't break ranks. They do not push one another. Everyone marches on his, in his own column. 
Though they lunge between the weapons, they are not cut down. They run to and fro in the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter uh, at the windows like a thief. In other words, they just took everything over outside of the houses, inside of the houses, uh, every single uh, bit of it with their uh, uh, their destruction. And the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, uh, the sun and the moon grow dark, the stars diminish their brightness, the Lord gives His voice before His army, for the camp is very great, for strong is the one who executes His word, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, who can endure it? And so this army's completely invincible. And you see there in, in verse uh, 10, uh, language that is similar to language you see in the book of Revelation. Again, this invasion, this destruction. And again, remember, the book of Joel is written to the Jewish people. Uh, the seven-year tribulation period is not for the church. It's not even supremely about the Gentile world, though it affects that. But it's mainly the time of Jacob's trouble. It is God's individual dealing with the Jewish people in order to bring them to come to realize and to recognize Jesus as their Christ and as their Messiah. And so when it, it talks about the, the sun and the moon grow dark and the stars diminish in their brightness, probably the fires that are burning related to the destruction, and, and, uh, but speaking of the greatness of the destruction in, uh, in all of it. And so then God gives his solution here in verse 12. Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all of your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning, and so rend your heart and uh, not your garments. And so he calls them to a complete repentance to turn back to him. And he says, I don't want you just tearing your garments, tearing your robes. I just don't want outward repentance. I don't want you to come to me because you're sorry of the consequences of your sin. I want you to come to me because you're really sorry about what you've done to my relationship with you. And so he, he wanted this uh, real weeping, real mourning, real fasting as an indication of of their repentance. Their only way out from this would be a repentance and turning back to God. Return, he said, to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. And then this is beautiful in verse 14, for who knows if he will turn and relent and give a blessing behind him a grain offering, and a drink offering for the Lord your God. So it's like God says, what do you got to lose? I mean, the whole thing is just being wiped out before your eyes. I, I, what does it take for you to turn back to me? And, and then he assures them, if you turn back to me, I'll tell you what you're going to run into. I'll be gracious and merciful to you if, if you'll do that. And uh, unfortunately... Uh, in, in heading up to the great tribulation period, uh, the Jewish people will not be willing to uh, repent and return to the Lord from their greatest sin in human history, and that is the re uh, rejection of Jesus as Messiah 
until that great tribulation period occurs. And then the light will begin to go on for them as the, uh, they see the Antichrist ultimately for who and what he, uh, what he uh, uh, is. And so in verse 15, uh, blow the trumpet in Zion, uh, consecrate a fast, call us a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and nursing babes. Let the bridegroom go out from his chamber. So here's the bridegroom is in his chamber. Uh, the bride is in her chamber, just about to come out and get wedding. Uh, the wedding, God said, this is so urgent. The wedding's called off uh, temporarily here. And uh, no excuses, even bring the bride and the bridegroom uh, into uh, this consecrating of a fast and a, a sacred, uh, solemn uh, assembly. Let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch uh, and the altar. And so the priests are to lead the people uh, in repentance. Let them say, God even gives them the prayer to pray to Him, uh, in, in, in their kind of backslidden state. Spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach that the nations should rule over them. Uh, speaking of the Gentiles, why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? If God did not supernaturally protect the Jewish people in the great, uh, during the period of the Great Tribulation, they would, have been, they would be utterly wiped out as surely as, as the Jews would have been utterly wiped out in Jerusalem at the time of, of, uh, of, of Assyria's uh, in, invasion uh, there. And so uh, the Lord is, is calling them uh, back and, and, uh, and, and repentance is, is what would be, uh, would be needed, a cry to, to be spared, the danger of the situation. But again, many, many Jews will come to Christ during the tribulation period, and, and many will come to recognize uh, Him, Jesus, as Messiah at His second coming. And then with the repentance, God says He'll restore them. Then the Lord will be zealous for His land and pity His people. And the Lord will answer and say to His people, Behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil, and you shall be satisfied uh, by them. I will no longer make you a, a reproach among the nations. And so the uh, resti restitution of of the uh, agriculture of the land of Judah. That happened after the defeat of the Assyrians. But following uh, Jesus' second coming, Jerusalem will become the center from which Jesus ru rules the entire world. And agriculture will be restored in, uh, bountifully uh, to the land of Judah and the land of Israel. They will, as the Jewish people, uh, uh, no longer be a reproach among the Gentile nations. And again, here on the near side of things, we're talking about the Assyrians uh, defeating them. And God says, I'm going to deliver you from this immediate thing. But all of it is a type of the fact that I am not going to allow the Gentile nations uh, to destroy you. I will remove your reproach off of you. Look at how many times people have tried to destroy the Jews in human history. 
it's, a, it's one of the blights upon uh, human history, if not the greatest blight in, uh, in human history. And so God is speaking again near with the Assyrians and then far related to the great tribulation. Uh, they, uh, uh, their place in the land will be uh, quite a place during Jesus' millennial reign. But I will, remove far, uh, I will remove far from you the northern army, Assyria, invaded from the north and will drive him away into a barren and desolate land, his face toward uh, the eastern sea and his back toward the western sea and his stench will come up and his foul odor will rise because he has done monstrous things. And what, what Joel describes here, remember he said, he's telling all of this long before it happened, um, uh, uh, easily a hundred years before it, it happened. And he's talking about this destruction of this Assyrian army and uh, where uh, the description of where it is that they were destroyed. Uh, it, it, this this uh, verse 20 is a description of right where they would have been destroyed in their place and then the stench, of course, of 185,000 dead bodies within the land is, is described uh, because he's done monstrous things. God allowed Assyria, he used Sennacherib to bring judgment upon the northern kingdom of Israel, but he got fat and sassy and thought he was really something and decided to take on Judah, and Judah wasn't uh, uh, on the menu uh, for what God was doing at that time, and so God brought judgment uh, upon him. It's always great to read about the providence of, of God in the Bible, the fact that he really is in control of human uh, history. And so uh, here... Uh, uh, Joel describes what would be the aftermath of, of this defeat of Assyria, uh, the aftermath of Jesus' uh, second coming. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done marvelous things. Do not be afraid, you beasts of the field, for the open pastures are springing up, and the tree bears its fruit, and the fig tree and the vine yield their strength. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he has given you the former rain faithfully, and he will cause the rain to come down for you, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. And so he promises uh, abundant rain to them. Again, Israel was not like Egypt. Egypt had a Nile River. They had irrigation canals, all these kind of things that we're familiar with as Californians. And, uh, but they depended upon an early rain and a latter rain. Uh, and without either one of those, the crop was a failure. And God says, I'm going to give you all the rain that you need for agricultural abundance and thus food abundance in uh, following this invasion and then certainly in the kingdom age. The threshing floor shall be full of wheat and the vats shall overflow with new wine and oil. And so I will restore to you uh, the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming uh, locust, and the chewing locust, my great army which I sent among you. And so there'll be a complete restoration of the land from uh, the devastation of God's judgment. And so you imagine uh, at, at the end of the great tribulation period, the devastating condition of the land of Israel 
The book of Revelation talks about an earthquake that's going to hit that uh, part of the world as, as well. And, uh, and it'll be a devastation that'll be as great as anything that Assyria brought into the land. And God says that's not going to be the final say on things. At His second coming, He establishes His millennial reign and uh, He will undo all of the damage that the judgment that He had to bring upon the Jewish people to get them to... Uh, see the most important thing in their life, and that is Jesus is the Messiah. Once that light has gone on, then He can begin this work of restoration. You shall eat uh, in plenty and be satisfied. Uh, eating plenty and being satisfied has been a great gift in human history, and uh, so it is today. And praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never be put uh, to uh, shame. And so then you shall know that, uh, that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. My people shall never be put to shame. And so there's aspects of this that were clearly fulfilled. We'll stop here, by the way, that were clearly fulfilled uh, in the Assyrian invasion, but then aspects here uh, of the description uh, here, for instance, in verse 27, you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. My people shall never be put to uh, shame. That is yet future. That's going to happen when the Jew Jewish people recognize Jesus as Messiah. I don't know what the per percentage is in Israel in terms of how many people uh, are even religious Jews. And uh, uh, it, it is a, a nation that is, uh, is, has a very, very heavy representation of uh, Jews who are atheists and all. And, uh, but uh, by the time that great tribulation unfolds, the deliverance of God, the special work of God to reach the Jewish people, at the end of that, by the time of Jesus' second coming and establishing of His kingdom, uh, then they will know uh, that the, He is the Lord their God and there is no other. And so there we stop tonight. And because the final section... Uh, of the book. It's, it's kind of a funny book because you can't get through all of it in really one setting unless we're going to be here an hour and a half. And uh, I know nobody's interested in that. So, um, so to break it up, but here as we move on next time in 28 and all the way to the end, now we begin to see a description, clear description of the day of the Lord. And what we know to be the day of the Lord, given the superior revelation that we have of the book of Revelation. And uh, so the, the plague of the locusts were a picture uh, of this coming day of the Lord, the great tribulation, this invasion uh, by the Assyrians, a picture, a type of this coming uh, a, a, a great tribulation that's going to come upon the world, God's dealing with the Jews, and then moving forward now in the rest of the chapter, uh, that becomes the focus itself. No more shadows. Now he describes it in earnest. And, and if you're familiar with Revelation chapters 6 through 19, which describes uh, that judgment of the, uh, of the tribulation period, all of this will be uh, very, very familiar uh, to you. When we study uh, the book of Joel like we're doing tonight and doing it by and large as a group of Gentiles, 
we're looking into God speaking to the Jewish people about the judgment that is going to come to them in order for them to turn to the Lord with all of their heart. And that has to involve uh, accepting His Son as their Messiah. And it's always a very, very hard thing to watch um, what God must sometimes do in an individual person's life in order to bring them to an end of themselves to where they will finally recognize Jesus as their Savior in their life. And in Jerusalem today or in Israel today, overwhelmingly, 2,000 years later, in the face of the, the, the prophetic witness of the entire Bible, Jesus is completely, almost completely rejected by the Jewish people as their Messiah. And you wonder, what in the world would it take? I mean, the, the way that he is despised by the rabbis and by the Orthodox Jews, the hatred that is still there toward him. And you wonder, as God looks and says, no, when I establish my kingdom age, it will not be what I want it to be unless the Jewish people are represented there as well. But what will it take for that to happen? And what it will take is the great tribulation. And if you don't believe it, take a trip to Israel and see how Jesus is esteemed. But the great tribulation will break even the strongest resistance against him, the strongest unwillingness to accept him and recognize him as Messiah. But it is astonishing that it will take that much to do it because that's how deeply ingrained and deeply entrenched uh, uh, so many are against him or ever turning to him. But the Lord loves him enough to say, no, I'm not, I, want, I want Jew and Gentile in, in great numbers in this kingdom age, and uh, I will do to the Jewish people uh, what is necessary for them to have their place, the place that I desire for them in all of this. Father, we thank you for Jesus tonight, and we thank you for the salvation that we have in him. Thank you that we are not uh, appointed unto wrath we thank you for our own salvation story. We thank you for what you did and had to do in order to wake us up to see, uh, to, to see that we were uh, fighting against you and not worth being the God of our life. And Lord, for some of us, it was your goodness that brought us to repentance, and others of us needed stronger measures. But we thank you for all of that, all that uh, brought us ultimately to find our little place in your plan on the right side of your word and your salvation. Thank you for our Savior. Thank you for our salvation. Thank you for providing it to us tonight. And thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.